If you grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Job. I'm going to be reading beginning chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. Job 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, does Job fear God for no reason? You Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And all this... Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. 
Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Father, I readily admit that I am unworthy to not only read your word, but to preach your word. Lord, I'm counting on you to do only what you can do, and that is through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak to your people. Father, show us your glory in and through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a quote by A.W. Tozer. You mentioned Job in the book of Job, and suffering comes to our mind. The reason for this is you can't unhitch the book of Job from suffering, which is one reason why it's not preached on very often. We humans don't like the topic of suffering. We don't like it practically in our personal lives, and we don't like it when it's brought up when talking to people about the Lord. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that pain and suffering is, well, it's painful. Um, Another reason, though, is that we have a bad understanding concerning pain and suffering. Pain and suffering has been at the heart of the philosophical attack against God for at least 2,000 years. Philosophically, the issue of pain and suffering and the goodness of God has been settled. And it's no longer brought up very often, at least philosophically. But in the real world, the issue of pain and suffering is still one we have to deal with. This is one very good reason why we should study through the book of Job because it unashamedly takes on the topic of suffering. It makes us deal with, the issues and force, with this issue and forces us to consider the why of pain and suffering. And this may seem counterintuitive to us, but reality, it is the most healthy for our, um, thing that we could possibly do. Because a biblical understanding of the why of pain and suffering will bring us to an end of ourselves and will challenge all of our preconceived ideas on what it is to be a Christian. What are the benefits of um, believing in God, and even the very nature of God himself? These are the topics that I'm going to cover today. Restated, it is, why worship God? Or, as it stated to Job, why fear God and turn away from evil? So the first five verses of chapter 1 focus on the man Job and give us background information about him that is pertinent to the story that we have. Outside of knowing who he was and what his life was like, um, the attack on him really wouldn't hold as much force. But we learn that he was not only wealthy, but that he was considered um, the greatest man in the East. He had 10 grown kids, seven boys, three girls, And there was a closeness between them that isn't seen in most families. For they gathered together on a monthly basis to celebrate, to feast, and to hang out with each other. And unlike most men, or many men in the Bible anyway, it seemed like Job was a good dad. Um, Because at the end of these feasts, before they left, he would pray for each one of them. And then after they left, he would get on his knees and pray to God for them. Beginning in verse 6, though, our focus is dramatically changed. From the man of Job and the earthly realm to God and the heavenly realm. A realm that is completely unlike ours. A realm that is rarely spoken of in scripture, but a realm that we still have plenty of preconceived ideas about. And from the very get-go, our understanding concerning God, heaven, and even Satan are all wrecked. Verse 6, 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Wait, what? I thought that Satan was an enemy of God. Why in the world would God allow Satan in his presence? Didn't, cast, didn't God cast Satan out of heaven? Isn't he destined to the pit and eternal damnation? Yes. But God has chosen not to cast our mortal enemy into hell, at least not yet. In this span of redemptive history, he is using Satan for his purposes and his glory. Satan is God's Satan. He's not, or he is under the rule and sovereignty of God and cannot do anything outside of the express purposes and will of God. Nor should we be surprised that God would use Satan or the fallen angels as he sees fit. We have another example of this happening in 1 Kings chapter 22. In, in this story, God is dealing with the evil king Ahab, whom he had already predetermined that he was going to destroy. And we have his prophet Micah recounting the situation much like the one in our story today. 1 Kings 22 says, And Micah said, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramath Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh saying, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And Yahweh said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. Yahweh has declared disaster for you. 1 Kings 22, verses 19 through 23. Again, our, under, our understanding of heaven, completely wrecked. And it gets worse from here. For what happens next in our story goes against much of what is propagated in American Christianity concerning what God is like, and even much of what we want to believe concerning our life with God. We're taught that God is love, that he wants our best for us, and that he's our protector and our shield. These are biblical truths, but the problem is, is that our understanding of what these words mean is, is, uh, is not correct. We think they mean that because of him, Nothing bad can touch us. From health issues to poverty, we're told God wants us to have a happy marriage. We're told God will never allow you to go bankrupt. We're told God will not cause pain or affliction in your life. But here, in these verses, God throws one of his own under the bus. It starts with a conversation between God and Satan. Again, something that we have a hard time understanding. Here's the situation as verses 7 through 12 tell it. The angels in heaven are presenting themselves before God. Why? We aren't told. How often does this happen? Again, we're not told. But what we are told is that Satan was there, and God specifically calls him out, asking him a question, much like the one he did Adam in the garden. In the garden, God asked Adam, where are you? Here, he asked Satan, where have you been? Now, we can be confident that in both cases, God wasn't asking a question to learn new information. Just with, like with the question with Adam, God knew the answer. He's not only sovereign, he's omniscient. Something that Job himself knew, for he tells us in chapter 21, verse 22, can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? The Apostle John echoed this truth when he made, and he made it a bit plainer in 1 John 3, 20, when he said that God knows everything. This includes Satan. God isn't concerned about what Satan's been up to. He's not worried that he's been out hatching some kind of an evil plan that's going to overthrow his authority at all. He's fully aware of where he's been and what he's been up to, just like with Adam. And Yahweh asked him, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
This is an important verse if we are understanding the meaning behind the suffering of Job. There is a question embedded within this statement that gets to the very nature of God himself. A question that Satan will give an answer to. God is challenging Satan, an angelic being, with a mere mortal. It is God that said that Job was blameless and upright. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means that his life was marked with moral and ethical excellence, not perfection. But this is how God tells Satan Job lived. And God tells Satan why he lives this way. Because he fears God and turns away from evil. It's one thing to have a person say of you that you live a life of moral and ethical excellence. That you fear God and that you turn away from, your, from evil. But here, it's God who said that he was blameless and upright. It was God who said that he feared him and turned away from evil. We have to remember where Satan had come from. From heaven. From being, a create, from being created as a perfect angelic being. The leader of the worship to God in heaven. God is challenging Satan with his servant Job, once again, just a mere mortal. And the challenge is centered on the why of Job fearing God and turning away from evil. But before we can get to that question, let's deal with this term, fear God. For the term fear God has fallen on hard times in our day. There are many who get very angry when, you, when you're told or you tell them that they are supposed to fear God. And they do so for two reasons. The first is they have a bad understanding of what fear of God means. And the second is they have a bad understanding of what our relationship with the Lord is supposed to be based on. For the regenerate, fearing God does not mean that we're terrified of him. But for the unregenerate, you should be. But for the regenerate, he's our loving father. But he's still a sovereign and holy father. The answer of what fear God looks like and what it means can be found within Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Fearing God is being thankful. It is worshiping God acceptably in reverence and awe. These verses also tell us why we should fear God, for he's a consuming fire. Our God being a consuming fire doesn't sound like a logical reason why we should be thankful and worshiping acceptably. And in fact, it is this truth concerning God which causes the unregenerate to hate him even more. God is holy, and he will judge sin. He will consume all that is not of him in fire and cast all those that are not his into hell for all eternity. But the book of Hebrews and these verses weren't written for the unregenerate. It was written for the elect of God. And God being a holy, consuming fire that will consume all sin can only be a reason for worship to those who are no longer under that condemnation. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews, in the beginning of chapter 12, takes us back and begins with why we should fear him. For we're told in verse 2 that we are to look to Jesus. As we endure the trials of this life, knowing where they come from, and then he tells us where they come from in verses 5 and 6. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when he reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author of Hebrew ends chapter 12 by pointing us back once again to how we're able to receive this kingdom that's unshakable. How we're able to be called the sons of God. Back to Jesus and the blood that brings propitiation for our sins. God is a consuming fire. He will make it all things new. He will deal with all sin, for he is holy. And for the sons of God, our sins have already been paid for in full through the Christ of Christ. 
Again, fearing God is being thankful. It's worshiping God with reverence and awe. Now back to the question. Satan had an answer as to why Job feared God and turned away from evil. He says, of course he fears you and turns away from evil. You have given him a life of ease and comfort, wealth and health, and you prevent me from even coming close to him. You take all that away, and you will see that he no longer fears you or loves you. He will curse you. His answer as to why Job feared God was because of the stuff that God gave him. He didn't see God as worthy of being feared or worshipped outside of the things that he could get from him. The outcome of this conversation brought tragedy upon Job. Tragedy that very few people on earth have ever had to deal with. In an instant, Job lost all of his wealth. In an instant, he went from being the greatest man in the East to having nothing. And while he was still trying to deal with this truth, trying to wrap his head around what just happened, the worst news came to him. All of his precious children have been killed. We need to stop and let that sink in. Try to grasp the enormity of what just happened in the life of this man. How would we act if something like this occurred in our lives? How do we act when small little things like our car breaking down happen? How we react is a reflection on what, of why we worship God and even what we think of him. Verses 20 through 22 tell us how Job reacted to this news. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. John Piper has said, and I agree with him, that if we were able to pull back the curtain of heaven at that moment, we would have seen the angels in heaven shouting praise to God at the extreme value of him for who he is as they exclaimed, praise the God of Job. Most Christians, and many of us in this room, would agree that we, our lives are supposed to bring glory to God. I mean, after all, it is the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to, bring, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But knowing that we should bring glory to God and knowing what brings glory to God are two different things. But we shouldn't be fuzzy about what these things are. The Bible isn't. Our lives bring glory to God through acceptable worship, as we just read in Hebrews 12. Through faith, 2 Corinthians 1, 18 and 20. And also through suffering, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. How Job reacted is a clear demonstration of a man achieving the chief end of man and worshiping in reverence and awe. He worships not for what he can get out of God, but for God himself. Beginning in chapter 2, we're once again brought back into the heavenly realm, back to another day when the host of heaven come and present themselves before the Lord. And once again, Satan was with them. And once again, he is singled out by God. Once again, he's asked the same question. Where have you come from? He knew that God knew where he had come from. And I have to think that he was dreading the next question. Verse 3 of chapter 2. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. The accolades towards Job haven't changed. The character traits that God presents to Satan remain the same, even in light of the loss of all the things that Satan said were the reason why Job feared God. God once again presents his saint, a man who he himself says fears him, who turns away from evil, who is blameless and upright. He presents him to Satan. 
once again, challenging him with the faith of Job. But let's be clear, though, it wasn't the faith of Job or the character of Job or even Job himself that was the challenge to Satan. It was the why that was behind those traits found in Job that was being tested, not the person. Once again, this is the fundamental issue within this book and our lives. Why worship God? Why fear him and turn away from evil? Satan's response this time is much stronger than his last. This time he says, skin for skin. In other words, he's saying, maybe Job, Job didn't care so much about his possessions. Maybe he didn't care so much about his kids. But I'll tell you this, you apply pressure to him personally, to his health, to his well-being and comfort, and watch what happens. He will no longer be blameless or upright. And in fact, he will no longer fear you. He will curse you to your face. Once again, God gives Satan permission to attack Job. And once again, he demonstrates his sovereignty by placing limits on Job. You can do as I say, but you can't do what you want. Verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from evil and shall we not receive, I'm sorry, shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Once again, we see what it means to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Job has just laid the blame of all this tragedy that has befallen him at the feet of God. But not in accusation, but in worship to his sovereignty. We who have the word of God, have to, we have the why of Job's tragedy given to us. We know why all this happened. We even know how the end of the story comes out. Job didn't, and yet he clung to his faith, clung to the righteousness of God. This is the end of the prologue um, section of the book of Job. And now we can begin to wrestle with a question that's hidden um, within the, um, the challenge of Satan, the question that Job was faced with, that each of us will have to be faced with, the why of fearing God. Is God worthy of our praise, our love, our devotion? Why should we fear God? Is it the benefits or blessings that we're told that we're going to get by doing that? Is that the reason we should fear God? Stated another way, does God deserve to be worshipped because of the greatness of his character, or must he buy worship with gifts and promises of blessings? This is the question that is at the center of the next 23 chapters of this book. The next 23 chapters contain the conversation between Job and his three friends who came to comfort him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And found within this section, there are two answers, or two differing answers, given as to why we should fear God. For the sake of time, I'm just going to pull representational bits out of the, to highlight the answers given. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were all of the same opinion when it came to understanding our, their understanding of why we should fear God and even what the very nature of God was like. They had a very secure God-in-the-box theology, a theology that is based upon prid quo, um, quo pro, a theology that is being propagated not only in heretical sects like Mormonism, but also in many mainstream churches. You act this way, and God's going to bring good things to your life. This was a heart of their argument against Job. All this, Job, that happened in your life happened because you did something wrong. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Now do good, and good things will follow. Eliphaz was the first to speak, and right out of the gate we see what his theology is based upon and just how familiar it is to us. Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. He says, Remember now, 
Whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trou trouble, they harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. And how does he validate this understanding? Verses 12 through 18 of that same chapter, he says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid, dis amid disquieting thoughts from a visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. Eliphaz had received a vision. A spirit visited him and gave him deeper insights into God. How do you argue with that? This guy would be a headliner on TBN. He would fit in with many so-called Christians today. But be sure, just like on TBN, when you read through the arguments of Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, there are truths in what they say about the nature of God. This is the nature of evil. And what makes um, error so believable, because it's always surrounded by some truth. But Job's response to him can be summarized by the end of verse 21 of chapter 6. Job said to him, You see my calamity and are afraid. Job knew that the tragedy that had struck him was also a blow to the theology of these men. The one plus one equals two always equals two theology. You follow these biblical principles? Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Think good thoughts and good things are going to come your way. He knew that the trial that he was facing was also a trial for his friends. It attacked the very core of their understanding of and relationship with God. Bildad couldn't stand it any longer. He was up next. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Again, same message. Admit that you're wrong. Do good, and God will do good to you. His understanding of God was that of almost equals. Surely God is above us, but just barely. God must bless us if we act certain ways. God would never act outside of what we see as justice or what we see as right. He can't bring calamity upon us unless we sin. Job's response to Bildad stands in stark contrast to what Bildad said. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Then Job answered, Truly I know what it, um, that it's so, but how can a man, a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself God and succeeded? He who removed mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of his place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea, who made the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who dares to ask him, what are you doing? Here is the theology of Job. God is God. He is sovereign. 
He has not only the power to do as he wills, but the right as well. Finally, Zophar jumps in to comfort Job. Again, remember, these guys are supposed to be there to comfort him. Chapter 11, verse 13 through 19. He says, if you, prepare your, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hands, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure, and you will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember as waters have passed away and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like morning, and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take rest in security. You will lie down, and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. Now the friends of Job counseled him to look within himself for sin, and then admit his guilt, to repent. This is biblical, but they were wrong in why they told him to do it why they told him to repent. It wasn't so that God would receive glory. It wasn't so that the soul of Job would be comforted in being once again restored to his Savior. It was only so that God would bless him with stuff once again. The response of Job stood in stark contrast to what his friends told him. Chapter 12, verse 13 through 25, he says, with him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understand, understanding. Behold, he tears down and it can't be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. Behold, he restrains the waters and they dry up. He sends them out and they will inundate the earth. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to him. He makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and makes their loins with a girdle. And he makes priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away their discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belts of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness to light. He makes the nations great and then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Job didn't fear God because he was the giver of good things. And Job wasn't looking to the blessings of God for his comfort. The thing that he desired, what he was looking for from God, was the comfort that can only come from the presence of God, not the presence of God. Chapter 13, verse 24, he says to God, in the midst of this conversation, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? The next 13 chapters continue the dialogue between Job and these three men, and it gets more and more nasty and heated. But the thrust of the message that these men present never waver. Job, you have sinned, you have not kept your end of the bargain, and for this reason alone, you've been punished. Now admit that you're wrong, and God will bless you once again, and it'll all be good. And through it all, Job retained his innocence, and the why of fearing God. And we aren't left to guess at who was right in this argument between Job and his friends. For God himself rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar concerning their understanding him, Chapter 42, verse 7, he says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. This isn't to say that Job was completely right um, and, what he said, and what he said concerning God to his friends either. So much so that God first turns Elihu loose on him for four chapters, and then he himself deals with Job for justifying himself rather than God. And just to be clear, so that we're all on the same page, there are passages within the Bible that are prescriptive in how we are to act, that tell us that you will reap what you sow, and that sin will be punished. But these passages were never meant to be the basis of our relationship with God. 
nor the reason why we should fear or obey him. The theology of the friends of Job can be summed up in this. You should know God so that you can have your best life now. There are great benefits in worshiping the Lord. And it's all here. This was the why of their worship of God. Their understanding of God, His worthiness of worship, and our relationship with Him, the why we should fear Him and turn away from evil, was much the same as that of Satan. Let that sink in. Let's look back at the response that Satan gave to God concerning why Job was blameless and upright, why he feared God and turned away from evil. Beginning in 1.9, he says, Job did these things because of all the stuff that God had given him. He was confident in the fact that if these things were taken away, Job would not fear God. He wouldn't worship him, and he would find no value in him. In fact, he would curse him. But when that didn't happen, the next accused Job of fearing God only because of his health and ease in life. He must have thought that Job himself was just as ruthless as he was, and he didn't care about anyone but himself. His charge was still the same. The only worth in God is found in physical pleasure. This gets to the heart of the why question as to why we should worship God, why we should fear God. Do we even fear God? Is it only for the things that we get from him, or is it for him alone? Is God worthy to be praised, even if it means a life of pain and suffering? Think back to that quote that I started with from Tozer. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we understand God, the value that we place on him, will affect everything about our lives, including how and why we worship him. The false doctrine of the prosperity gospel is an anathema to us, but in reality... Do we who rail against it in our hearts truly believe as they do? Sure, we're more refined in our language. We can spout the five solas. But in our hearts, are we just seeking the presence and benefits of God? So if health and wealth and happiness are not the reasons for coming to Christ, and even being saved from the punishment of hell isn't the reason to believe, then what is? Job said, God is. Over and again, he held the sovereignty of God up as the reason why he worshiped and feared God. He points to God's creation as proof of God's power, his might and his goodness and his justice. He pointed to the holiness, the otherness of God. God is worthy of worship from everything that he ever created. He is greater than anything he ever created. In fact, he's greater than everything he ever created all combined. All the good things in this life, love, health, possessions, ease, and even the created universe itself, all these things are of less value than God. And loving any of these things, or all of these things, more than the Creator, is sin. This was the sin of Adam. He had been given a great gift in his bride, Eve. And he loved his wife more than he loved God, and he chose her over him. Sinner. You may find the truth of the sovereignty of God over his creation offensive. You may think within your heart that pain and suffering are just proof that God is cruel and unjust. This just proves that you are a sinner and you have made yourself an enemy of God. You have hardened your heart, turned it to stone through your love of self and self-exaltation, 
and are unable to see the glory, majesty, and worth of God. God is holy, holy, holy. He is unlike his creation. Even as his creation shouts his glory, demonstrates his magnificence and his intelligence, and it reflects the beauty found within his triune love, none of his creation can, be, can fully describe God. And in fact, all of his creation combined is only a mere shadow of the truth of the radiance of his beauty. All that is good, beautiful and lovely, all shout to glory to the name of God. All of his creation lives with one purpose in mind, to bring glory to his name, except you, if you're a sinner. You are a treasonous rebel that hates his creator. You have separated yourself from the love of God, and on that last day, you will stand before him in judgment. And don't think that this is a trial. It's not. The punishment for sin against an eternal God is eternal damnation. God is holy, and he can't overlook or sweep under the rug your sin. God is a consuming fire. There is no hope for you. Save one. If you can't see the beauty and worth of God through his creation, then see it in his beloved son. In him, the fullness of the triune glory of God dwells. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed long before creation and is supreme over creation. In him, God did what only God could do. He stepped down from eternity and became a human. Unlike Job, he not only lived a blameless life, he lived a sinless, perfect life. And although the condemnation was not his to bear, he bore the full wrath of the fury of his loving father for the sins of those that he loves. He paid in full the price of sin, the eternal price for our eternal sins as a substitutionary atonement for those that are the children of God. Sinner, do you recognize that you're an enemy of this holy God? Does this fact even matter to you? If so, repent of your sins. Turn from them and turn to God. Beg him to forgive you and plead the blood of Jesus the Christ to cover you. And saints, there is great value in being one of his children in this life and in the one to come. But the value of knowing God is not found in what he can give us in and through this creation. It is in knowing him. Paul said as much as, as, as much in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 10. He said, Whatever um, were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Saints, look again to the beauty of your Savior. Hear the words he said to us. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome this world. We will have tribulation in this life. It's just a fact. 
Paul admonished us to view these tribulations as light and momentary afflictions, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, and that we should look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It is God who has prepared these tribulations for us, and through them, he is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is through these tribulations that we come to know God better, that we come to cling to him tighter. Dear ones, there will be times in your life that you think that you can't bear it any longer, that it's all just too much. There will be times when you think that you're going to be lose, that you're losing your faith and you feel that God is distant from you. But hear this truth. Meditate on it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those that he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 30 Know that he who called you, who elected you before the very foundation of the world, he is the author and finisher of your faith. He will hold you fast. He will keep you as the apple of his eye. Through him, you will suffer because he loves you. He desires you to grow more and more into the image of his beloved son. But he will also sustain you. He is growing you into the person that you desire to be. Through these sufferings, you will come to know him better. I began this sermon today with a quote from Tozer, and I'm going to end this sermon with a prayer from him. This is the prayer worthy of praying. A prayer from a saint who saw the beauty, the worth, and the sovereignty of his God. Let's pray. O oh God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has made me satisfied and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland to where, from where I've wandered so long. Amen.